This is the season of Advent. It is time for us to ready, make ready for the celebration of Christmas and prepare our hearts to receive God's gift of Jesus. It's a season of longing, expectation, and waiting. Even today we yearn for Jesus to return as king and to restore all things. Today we light the first candle in the Advent wreath. The candle of hope. We use this light to help us prepare our minds and hearts, along with Christians around the world, for the coming of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I want to welcome you all here again this morning formally. My name is Wes, and I have the privilege of being a part of the staff team here at Ebenezer, serving in the area of college and career, as well as part of the speaking and preaching team. And whether you're joining us in person or you're with us online, it is good to be with you this morning. Now today, like I just shared, is the first Sunday in Advent. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, oh my goodness, it's already here. (laughs) And to answer your second question, no, my family and I are not ready for Christmas yet, but we will get there. (laughs) And in this season of Advent, we are going to be calling our series, Behold Your King. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at a number of different ways that Jesus is our king. We'll be looking at how he is our promised king from the Old Testament scriptures, how he is the humble king, how he is the saving king of the world, and how he is the perfect king. But for today, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is our longed-for king. But before we get into our message, I would just ask if you would pray with me as we begin our time together. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you for your mercy and your faithfulness in our lives. God, we thank you that you lead us into all truth. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come now and that as I share, you by your spirit will lead us into truth that will empower us, that will set us free, and that would encourage and strengthen us. God, I pray that all this would happen for your glory, that anything I share that is of you, God, that it would land in good soil and that it would bear much fruit that you intended to bear. And anything that is not of you, God, that it would fall to the side and wither. I ask this, Lord, for your honor and glory in Christ's good name. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And all God's people said, amen. Well, in the early weeks of February 2012, my wife Tamara and I were at a doctor's appointment in Prince Albert. We were living in Birch Hills at the time where I was serving as a youth pastor of Lake Park Baptist Church. And we had been married all of about six months and change when we went to this doctor's appointment because Tamara noticed she wasn't feeling well. And we, well, we kind of had some suspicions as what it might be. Sure enough, the doctor came back to us and told us the good news that we were expecting. And as you can see, my wife is as lovely and as stunning as ever. I definitely married up, and everyone said amen, Wes. Yes, you did. Um, (laughs) In October of that year, 2012, we welcomed our first son, William, into our lives. Now, up until that point, I had never really heard of this phenomenon that is called nesting. 
Um, but I became a first-hand witness of this as we were preparing for William's arrival. I watched my wife develop a laser-like focus as we prepared for this baby to arrive, from everything from the color of the baby's room to everything that needed to be set and put in place in that room. It was a time of expectation as we prepared for this child's coming. But it was also a season at the same time of waiting. The doctor gave us uh, a due date of October the 10th for our son's arrival, and the little guy decided he liked it in there and waited around until the 20th to show up. And every text I got from Tamara, every phone call I received, my, my spirit was leaning forward. Is it time? Is this happening? Is this, is, are we doing this? And there were many, many false starts along the way. Many nights of, is this happening? Do we need to do this? No, it, it's it's. We're just going to go back to sleep. Okay. And so there was a lot of that going on in that time. And the reason that I bring all of this up is because this is very much like what the season of Advent is. Advent is a season of preparation and it is a season of waiting. The word Advent means arrival or the coming of an important person or thing. In the time of Advent, we wait, with, we wait for what is coming with a hope-filled expectation. And lots of times when we say waiting in our world, we mean a kind of passive or mildly annoyed sort of state that we have to be in as we wait for that person or that thing to occur. This is not the kind of waiting that we are called to engage in in the season of Advent. I described to you Tamara's laser-like focus as she prepared for our son's arrival, all the preparations that had to be made. This is a lot more of what it means to have an active kind of waiting. You're not passively sitting on your hands. You're not bored and annoyed with how long this is taking. You're not sitting, you know, you're kind of sitting in the dentist's office scrolling on your phone. You're just, ah, when is this going to happen? That's not the kind of waiting that we're talking about. We're talking about an active, engaged way that we wait. And the way in which the scriptures most often talk about this way of active waiting is to use it synonymously with the word hope. Psalm 130 verses 5 and 6 put it this way. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Do you see how the psalmist puts it? He waits with every part of his being as he he waits for God. And the word he chooses to use for that is to say it's hope. He puts his hope. Advent is the season in which we remember God's faithfulness in the past. We remember his promises and how he's fulfilled them as we wait in hope for God to bring about his promises in the future. And this morning, to begin our Advent series, we are going to be looking at Jesus, our longed-for King. And we're going to do so by looking at the hymn, which is called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, some of the lines should be up on the screen behind you. I didn't have enough space to put all of the lines up. But this is a very well-known hymn. And the hymn as we know it today was arranged in roughly the 1850s by an Anglican priest named John Mason Neal. And it was widely concluded that he took this hymn from its origins in Latin and he translated it into English. 
And so the versions that we are familiar with in English are roughly about 120 years old, or sorry, 170 years old, though the origins of this hymn are actually much, much older. They actually go back to the Benedictine monks of roughly the 8th or 9th century. So this is a very, very old hymn, ancient actually in its origin. And because this hymn is so old, and there have been many versions of it done throughout the years, we aren't going to be able to focus on all of it today, but we're going to focus on a few of its key expressions or words. So the rest, for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at four key words or expressions that speak to Jesus as our longed-for King. The first is simply the opening words of the hymn, O come, O come. Right, it's this cry, this crying out to God for him to come. Throughout the storyline of the Old Testament, the people of God are a people of exile. Right from the very opening pages of Genesis all the way up to the end of the book of Malachi and into the time of the New Testament, the people of God are a people of exile. It starts right in the garden where Adam and Eve disobey God and disregard his commandments, they are forced to leave the garden. They are exiled from the place that God created for them to be and live and work with him. The story continues in Abraham where God calls Abraham out from his family and calls him to leave his land and to leave his family, to go to a place that he does not yet know. And as he forms a family and a people, those people end up going down to Egypt with Joseph and they become oppressed there after many generations by the empire of Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, it says this, Exodus chapter two. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Throughout the Old Testament narrative, God's people are crying out to him as they see here in Exodus. They're crying out for a savior, for a deliverer, for someone to release them from their captivity and bring them back into their home of promise. And this cry is encapsulated so well in the beginning of our hymn, right? O come, O come. It's this cry on the people's hearts. Isaiah the prophet said it this way in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those for wait, to wait for him. Throughout the generations, the cry on the lips of the people of God has been, Oh God, would you come? Oh God, would you come and rescue us and save us? God, would you come? Psalm 85 verses 1 through 7 in the New Living Translation, they put it this way. Lord, you poured out blessings on your land. You restored the fortunes of Israel. You forgave the guilt of your people. Yes, you covered all their sins. You held back your fury. You kept back your blazing anger. Now restore us again, O God of our salvation. 
put aside your anger against us once more. Will you be angry with us always? Will you prolong your wrath to all generations? Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. The psalmist calls on God to remember what he has done in the past because he is praying in the present, God, would you come and do it again? Would you come and revive us again? Would you come and restore us again? Would you come and forgive us again? The cry of every generation of the people of God is, could you come? Come, God, and bring the grace that we so desperately need. And in Revelation 22:20, Jesus hears this cry. He hears this cry, and it is written that he responds and says this. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I am coming soon, says Jesus. And we say yes and amen. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, but that word soon. (laughs) It's a tricky word for us, isn't it? What one person means by soon and what another person means by soon are often two very different things. C.S. Lewis puts it so terrifically in his children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, and in one of the books in particular, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Aslan, who is the main character, and he is the, the figurehead of Christ in the stories. He is speaking with this child, Lucy, and he says this, Do not look sad. We shall meet soon again. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? I call all time soon, said Aslan. And instantly he vanished away. I call all time soon. Have any of you experienced that? What God calls soon, maybe you call a lifetime. You're not alone in that. Because while the cry of every generation is that of come, God, come, Lord, oh, come, oh, come, there is an experience that we all face, and that is feeling alone or feeling forgotten. And that takes us to the second phrase in our hymn, which is this, that mourns in lonely exile here. That mourns in lonely exile here. I shared before that the people of God have always been a people of exile. And this continues throughout the Old Testament story. Even when Israel claims the land and even when they establish a kingdom, the prospect of exile is always looming on the horizon. And it always seems like it's just one generation away. And this succumbed to that reality in a very devastating and painful way in the year 587 BC when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. Many Jewish people were killed in this time either through the invasion of the city or through the starvation of the surrounding areas that occurred earlier. And those who weren't killed were forcefully captured and sent off to exile in Babylon. And the prophet Jeremiah was a sad witness to this fall of the city. And he chronicles this in the book of Lamentations. I'm just going to share with you a couple of selected passages from that book. How deserted lies the city, Jeremiah writes. Once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. 
My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. The destruction and the exile of Jerusalem was horrific. It was a time of loss and suffering and mourning. And it's in those times of mourning and loss where we long to be comforted. We long to be consoled. We want to know that despite everything that has happened, that there, there has to be something good that can still come out of this. And in chapter 3, Jeremiah lets us know that there is. That even in the midst of this rubble and pain and destruction, there is still a seed of hope. And he writes this in Lamentations 3, 19 through 26. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who wait, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Even in the midst of the worst things imaginable, God's promises never fail to come through. Jesus sees our ache, he sees our longing, he sees our brokenness, he sees our pain, and he is not a God who it falls on deaf ears. He responds, he comes. And this is what makes him such a great king. The salvation of the Lord did come. And it will come again. And that is what leads us to our third word in this message. And that is the word day spring. Day spring. Now, this word comes from the verse in our song. O come thou day spring, come and cheer thy spirits by thine advent here. And that word day spring, it occurs only, it occurs only 11 times in the New Testament. And every time it occurs in the King James Version, it's actually in reference to the word east. So whether that was the wise men coming from the east to visit Jesus, or whether that was many who would come to the Lord's table at the end, they would come from every direction, they would come from the east to sit with God at the end of all things. Every time that that word is used, it is used, for, is used east, except once, at least in the King James Version. And this is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. This is the prophecy of Zechariah as he speaks over his son, John the Baptist. And he says this to his son as an infant. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring, there's our word, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And I love how the hymn puts it because the, the, the hymn writer, he literally just takes Luke 1, 78 and 79 and he just rips it right out of the scriptures and he turns it into song, right? Oh, come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. You can see the references up there. He's literally just taking Luke 1, 78 and 79. He's just ripping it right out of the text and he's turning it into song. And I love that. The metaphor of day spring is like the sun rising in the east. Day spring is this idea that just as the sun rises in the east and it dispels the darkness, this is what Christ is to us. He comes in times of darkness and hopelessness that we experience to liberate us from it and to push back the fear of death in our lives. I had the privilege of attending a conference this past week here in the city on the issue of homelessness here in Saskatoon. We as Ebenezer, we were fortunate to sponsor this event and so myself as well as Tracy and a number of members of our, one of our partner congregations, Meadow Green House for All Nations, they were able to send some of their staff there as well to this event. So I was very privileged to be able to take part in it. And in one of the breakout sessions, the speaker was talking about his work to end homelessness across Canada. But he was coming from the perspective of someone who at one time in his life, he himself had been homeless. And what he shared at that time was very impacting. I'm misquoting him a little bit here from my notes that I was taking, but he basically said this. When I was homeless, the biggest challenge I faced was not where was I going to sleep that night or when was I going to get my next meal or feeling insecure that I smelled bad and I knew it and there was nothing that I could do about it. No, the hardest part about not having a home was feeling hopeless. Today has been terrible. Sorry, yesterday was terrible. Today has been terrible. So tomorrow will be terrible too. So what's the point? And as I was sitting there listening to him speak, it reaffirmed to me a crucial need that all of us as humans have, and that is the need for hope. It doesn't matter if you have all of your basic needs met. If you do not have hope, then life is meaningless. It is pointless. If you don't have hope, then no amount of money or success or relationships are ever going to heal that ache. We need hope in the same way that we need food to survive. You might be able to last a little while without food, but eventually, if you don't get it, you will starve. And you will succumb to that. And many people in hopelessness, they do succumb to that. And the gospel of Jesus is still good news. The gospel of Jesus is still good news for who feel that weight of hopelessness and despair. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 says this, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of 
of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Don't you just love that last line? The oil of joy for mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Right, this is what the hymn is calling for. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night. And this is what the gospel does. It is a message of hope. Despite the fact that we have walked away from God, we have sinned, we have rebelled against him. In love he has pursued us. In love he has forgiven us. He has given himself to die on a cross to take our sin and a punishment upon, upon himself so that we could be reconciled to him. The fundamental human need that every single person has is for hope and to be reconciled to their creator. Everything flows from that and we have good news. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, Paul says this, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The gospel reconciles us to God. It bridges the gap. It, it breaks down all the barriers and it reconciles us to God. But then it makes us ministers of reconciliation. We now are commissioned and we are sent by God to, to carry this message of hope and reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. The gospel is not simply, I get to go to heaven when I die. Yes, that's a part of it, but it's also good news that God is bringing his kingdom here to earth and he is inviting you to participate in the reconciling of all things in Christ. You are invited and called to be a part of God's story of redemption. This is good news to a world that needs hope. And that leads us to our final word in this hymn, and that is simply the word rejoice. Rejoice, right? The first word of the chorus. Because what else is there to do? What else is there to do when you hear good news, when you receive good news? What else is there to do but rejoice? And not only is this the, the most inevitable, natural thing to do, it is also commanded of us by God. Psalm 32, verse 11 the psalmist says this, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. 97, 12, rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. What else is there to do? <laughs> What else is there to do? You, you receive good news. There, there's nothing but to do but to rejoice. Now, but some of you might be thinking and raising objections in your mind and saying to yourself, well, yeah, Wes, but I don't always feel like rejoicing. You know, I don't always feel like it in the moment. And I don't, you know, because I don't feel like it all the time, then I, I really shouldn't do it because that would be inauthentic. That would not be authentic worship if I don't feel it in the moment. 
Someone said it very well once when they said that our feelings are wonderful servants, but they are lousy masters. Your feelings do not dictate everything that you do. That's called immaturity. Children act on impulse. They do everything that their feelings tell them to do. That's called immaturity. You are not always going to feel like rejoicing. Sometimes it is a choice that we make despite our feelings. I love how David puts it in Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. He writes this, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who is David talking to here? He's not talking to his audience. He's talking to his soul. (laughs) He and his soul are having a little conversation. And what he is saying, he's saying, soul, it's time to bless the Lord. Soul, it's time to wake up. Soul, it is time to rejoice in God, to bless and praise his name. And his soul says, yeah, but I don't really feel like it. (laughs) Eh, I don't know. It's not into it right now. And he says, soul, forget not all his benefits. And Psalm 103 just becomes a list saying, "He, he forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He redeems you. The whole psalm is just a rehearsal of God's goodness so that he can preach to his soul and saying, Soul, God has been good to you. It's time to bless the Lord. You're not always going to feel like it. You're not. Do you think that Job felt like worshiping? As these servants come to him and they tell him, you've lost all your oxen, you've lost all your sheep, you've lost all your camels, and now you've lost every one of your children in a day. Do you think in that moment he felt like worshiping? No, of course not. But what does he do? He falls to his knees, he he shaves his head, he tears his robe, and he, he worships the Lord. Naked have I come, naked I will leave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. We do not rejoice in our circumstances, we rejoice in the Lord. Did you hear me? We do not rejoice in our circumstances, we rejoice in the Lord. Our circumstances are always subject to change, but God never changes. God is steadfast, he is immovable, and he is always worthy of our praise. And see, for many of us, Advent is a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. We eagerly gather to, to get together with family and friends, and we share meals and laughter. And it's, it's easy, when, for some of us, it's easy to think about Advent, and it's like, rejoice. Yes, of course, well, that's easy. But it's in our circumstances. But for others of us, Advent is another painful reminder of loss and grief and of feeling forgotten or feeling overlooked. And the words of Psalm 13 are not far from some of you in this season. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. David writes this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? For some of you, this question is not a, this is a very normal question for you to ask the Lord. How long? 
How long is this going to take? How long am I going to have to be here? How long am I going to have to be in this place? How long? And it's not wrong to ask those questions of God. It's not wrong to bear your heart and to bear your soul before God. It's not wrong at all. But David doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay there. The psalm continues in verse 5 and 6 where he continues and he says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Did you catch that? He does not feel like it in the moment. His feelings are telling him, God, how long is this going to take? But then in verse 5, he says, I will sing. Do you hear that? He doesn't say, I feel like singing, but I will sing. I will rejoice in God, my Savior. In Advent, we look back and we see the faithfulness of God in his first coming. And in that good news, that's where we put our hope for his second coming. He is the king who has seen our longing. He has heard our cries in exile. And he has come like the rising sun to bring light and hope and joy into our lives. Jesus is the king whom we long for. And as we close today, I will ask the worship team to come and to join us for our closing hymn. And we're going to be singing the hymn that I've just been preaching through, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And as Amanda and the team come to lead us in our closing song, like always, we will have staff up here at the front. And if you have anything on your heart that you would like prayer for or you would like us to pray alongside of you with, we would be more than happy and willing to do that. So please feel free to come forward if you so wish. But as we sing this final song, I invite you to rejoice. Not in your circumstance, not in what's happening. I invite you to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus is the king we are longing for. He has come and he will come again. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your faithfulness towards us. Thank you that you are faithful in every season, whether we feel it or not. And God, we long to, to see you come again. We are longing for it, God. And in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of our grieving, in the midst of that ache, would you come and fill us with hope? Would you come and fill us with joy? Would you come and remind us of your faithfulness in those dark nights where we can't see it? And give us hope and light and joy to continue to believe and trust that you are who you say you are. And in that we can rejoice. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.